Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bring, bring it bring it to the bank. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, everyone, and thanks for having me on, Kev. Um, I'm Sam Karp. I'm a Crystal Palace fan and an occasional writer for the Eagles Beak, as well as the deputy editor at SportsPro. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sam double underscore Karp. Hi, good to be back with you, Kevin. Uh, I'm Steve McGookin. I'm a Spurs fan based in Belfast, and I was previously chairman of the New York Spurs uh, Supporters Club. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me on this momentous occasion, which is us being able to talk about live football that really happened. We all saw it. It was a really, really good time. I just wanted to start off with what your impressions were of this first round of matches since the COVID delay. Yeah, the Premier League is back. Um, it's funny, actually, because the last time I was on this pod, I think all three of the guests, um, myself included, were all saying that it was too soon, that they were rushing it back, and that it was all just being driven by uh, by money. Um, I mean, that might still actually be Maybe true. it was. Uh, was never, <laughs> um, but, um, I mean, there was never any doubt that the Premier League would, at the very least, have a go. Um, but I think, obviously, the Bundesliga being back and the success it had kind of gave everybody the confidence that it it can be done um i guess the interesting thing now will be to see what happens if if there's a spike in cases if a few players do get it what happens then but for now it is really nice to have it back if only you know to have our twitter feeds full of grumpy football fans once again rather than some of the more depressing (laughs) yeah to that point that the uh, immediate arguments about goal line technology and var like in the first half (laughs) versus sheffield united yeah didn't take people long to get to the moaning yeah, and I've been such a terrible game up until then. Um, <laughs> but um, on the whole, I think it's I think it's been really it's been pretty good uh, considering that you know the teams have had three months off, so these are almost the equivalent of I guess preseason friendlies, the sort of first games you'd get at the start of the season. So it's not necessarily easy to get back into the rhythm, and there will be some players who it will take longer to get back up to fitness. Um, you know, as I said there, that Villa Sheffield United game wasn't that inspiring, but you probably wouldn't have the highest of expectations for that fixture, with all due respect and <laughs> in normal circumstances. But you know, those I've watched, I think the City game that evening was entertaining. I thought United Spurs was pretty good, um, and some of the matches this weekend have been good as well. So, um, so yeah, it's been decent um, as a TV product. I think it's been pretty good as well. Obviously, they're rolling out all of these bells and whistles to make us all feel as close to the action as possible to make feel a bit more familiar um and i'm kind of fully on board with the crowd noise personally i think it adds the same <laughs> sense of occasion kind of heightens the drama even though we all know there is no one there um i just think it's a bit better when the ball is being knocked about maybe and it can be a bit delayed or, sl- or slightly off when there is a goal or a chance it's quite funny you know when the ball flies over the bar and then 
two seconds later you get a massive ooh coming <laughs> coming through the TV. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, well, I think I prefer it to the games of books in the Bundesliga that, that haven't had it. Um, I guess obviously they'll have a better idea of what works and what doesn't as, as the games go by. Um, I think perhaps one of my only bugbears so far, something that Gary Neville has been going on about relentlessly on Sky, is um, is the water breaks. I know I know there's like obviously a medical reason for it, but I do think it disrupts the flow of the game slightly. Um, I remember there being one in the second half of the United Spurs game the other night, which I'm sure you two were grateful for because yeah. you know, they were very much on top at that point. But, um, and then we scored almost right after it. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it must be quite frustrating for the players and the managers. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I think the ironic thing as well is, um, you know, on the day that, that the Premier League comes back, well, not the day, but the weekend the Premier League comes back, uh, Germany's uh, R number that measures the spread, the infection spread, has has gone up significantly. So uh, it's now over two, I think, um, whereas we're trying to keep ours to, to about one. So, uh, you know, it, this is going to be, it's going to be in flux uh for the for the next few weeks um and we'll just have to uh, wait and see how it plays out i think you know uh, there's two things there's the context and the circumstances of how we've returned and then there's the watching experience so uh, you know from in terms of the context i think um the minute silence for the for the the the, the people who've lost their lives and the players taking the knee are both you're very powerful uh, and something i think that resonates with with every club uh, and it sends a, a message of solidarity. That the, the taking the knee sends a message of solidarity and and symbolism. And and the um, jerseys having the Black Lives Matter for the players' names uh, is an incredibly positive image, I think, for for the millions of young fans that are going to be watching across the uh, across the world. So that's that's been very impressive and clearly been thought through in a, in a good way. And and hopefully that'll then help bring about structural changes like you know having more black managers in the Premier League for example because I think we only have Nuno uh, at the moment and that's uh, um, but I, you know I think the, the, the teams are doing this the symbolic uh, gestures for the first few was it the first 10 to 12 games or something and then they're going to wear a Black Lives Matter patch on the sleeves for the rest of the season as long as well, as well uh, along with a with a patch for the NHS so that you know these are these are things that obviously the Premier League are thinking about in terms of the symbolism, and I think that's uh, they've got that right. Um, I thought generally the Bundesliga had done a, a very good job actually with the way they had managed their return, but but I've been impressed with the uh, with the Premier League so far. I mean, I, you know, I think I said to you last time I was on or the time before, Kevin, that I always felt that depending on the medical circumstances and the situation as it as it was, that I would probably have preferred not to return. Uh, until we were ready to have fans in the stands, and and that would that would have meant delaying next season if necessary in order to finish this one. But as long as you know, as long as enough precautions are being taken to make sure that everybody involved in in football, not just the players, but all the all the stadium staff, everyone is is say, as safe as we can make them, uh, and the restra- the restraints are as uniform for every team as they can be, then. And I think it's probably as good to play it out to a conclusion um, if we can play the season out. And obviously there wasn't much doubt, obviously, about the title. Uh, but it's good to move towards resolving the, the Champions League and the relegation issues. But um, but I, I think you can't you can't help but wonder, of course, what the situation would have been if the season had been suspended, say, in November or December rather than in March. 
and it, it's obviously a much more manageable situation with with eight games to go rather mm. than you know 15 or 20. Um, as for the actual watching experience, you know, the first impression that I got um, when I watched the first game was um, it was a bit like watching you and Tom play FIFA. But <laughs> With the I've same actually, audio noise. Yeah, right. But, I, but I, you know, I've actually sat and watched you play FIFA for two hours. So that actually uh, is no, no change really there. <laughs> I'm not sure uh, about the pumped in sound, to be honest. I, I kind of like the idea of hearing the players. Uh, and the coaches, and obviously for the players, they have no excuse for hearing what the manager's shouting at them. So uh, um, what I do like is the uh, the change to the substitutions. And obviously the number uh, the number of subs is appropriate with the, the increased frequency of the games. But I, I like that you can still only have uh, the three interruptions, but it actually, you know, um, makes for a more of a more of a strategic uh, impact on the game, I think. Um, I just I made a note this evening. I was listening to the uh, to the Merseyside derby, and Mark Lawrenson said that uh, it, it's as if someone has taken the players out of deep freeze and they're not quite thought out yet. And and I think that's kind of a fair a fair analysis. And there'll obviously be you know different levels of fitness and preparedness uh, across the across the league. And and interestingly, I mean, of the games that I've watched, I'm not sure if this is consistent, but there's been a real first half, second half contrast, not just, I think, mm. in the number of goals, um, but in the general energy levels. I think um, players seem to be stepping it up, stepping up the pace in the second half if they know the substitutes are are going to kick in uh, and that's going to you know, uh, take some pressure off them later. But obviously we're going to have concerns about uh, how fit the players are, how quickly they can get back to uh, anything approaching sort of peak fitness. Um, but, uh, you know, so far, so far, given that, uh, we are, as Sam said, you know, it was inevitable that we're coming back. So, uh, it, it seems to have been handled, um, pretty sensitively so far. Mm. Yeah. Sam, where did you land on the, uh, crowd noise versus no crowd noise, kind of the, the signage covering the lower tier of stands? What did you make of the visual and, and audio impact of the return? Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> Like I, said, like I sort of said before, I think the crowd noise, it works for me. Um, I just think, and I, I think the wraparound as well, it, it does it does sort of mask the fact quite quite decently that there are no fans there. Um, so yeah, for me on the whole, I think I definitely prefer having that crowd noise there than not having it. Um, I, think Steve, I, think, I think Steve makes a good point though um, about uh, wanting to hear the players more and the managers more, I guess, in an empty stadium, it is quite a good opportunity to get a little bit up closer to that and get a little bit more insight into some of the instructions being boxed out, how players interact with each other on the pitch um, and that kind of thing. So, I mean, going forward, if there's a way to sort of balance the two, um, I think that would make for a better product. But um, yeah, for sort of like the first round of games, I've definitely, uh, I've, I've definitely sort of preferred having that, having that crowd noise over the top rather than the, the Bundesliga games I've watched where it hasn't, where it hasn't been involved. Yeah. I just wonder if we're we're going to be able to use the next sort of uh, eight games or whatever to uh, to experiment with various things. I mean, I know there's been some discussion about uh, miking up players uh, when they're on the field or or even miking up the refs for when they're having discussions about VAR, for example. So maybe this is 
this is an opportunity to play around with a couple of things that that might be additions, might be positive additions uh, going forward. Definitely, I think um, that's sort of something that they've been doing in golf as well, um, and just in other sports generally. They're sort of seeing this window, I guess, as a chance to just, you know, try different things. If it doesn't work, then it doesn't really matter. Um, people are going to be tuning in anyway at the moment. Um, so if they do sort of stumble across something that that sticks, then I guess the it'll be the TV product will be all the better for it. Yeah, I think both of you also mentioned kind of the quality of play. I, I think I was kind of pleasantly surprised um, by how much teams kind of got clicking. Although, if I've done this math right, I think seven of the 11 matches we've seen thus far have been nil-nil at the half. Um, <laughs> so maybe that maybe that tension came from things being level rather than everybody being crap. But uh, overall, what have been your takes on the quality of play and which teams have most impressed or disappointed you since the restart? Yeah, as I said before, I think I've almost been sort of pleasantly surprised by how good some of the games have been. Um, you know, you can you can't really expect too much from uh, from players who have been off for as long as they have. Um, I mean, I know they're professionals, but it doesn't actually take take players' time to get back up to speed. Um, and I thought there were a few good performances. You know, I thought City looked pretty imperious in their game against Arsenal. Um, Newcastle obviously got a good result today against Sheffield United, but. Um, I think the ones that really impressed me were Wolves, to be honest. Um, I mean, they were impressing me before the break, being where they where they are in the league while still ploughing through the Europa League, like they were with a pretty small squad. Um, so coming back, you were sort of looking at them and, and wondering if they'd be able to rediscover that and maybe even mount a outside outside challenge for a top four place. Um, I mean, I know West Ham are pretty low in the league, but I still think that's a tough fixture to come back to. So I thought the way they managed it was... The way they managed the game was really impressive. It was a, just a very professional performance. Um, Nuno bringing on Traore late on, I thought it was a bit of a masterstroke because he's probably the last player a defender wants to come up against 70 minutes into their first game back. So using him as a substitute rather than starting him necessarily was probably a smart move. Um, so yeah, for me, Wolves were the ones who, who really impressed. Um, I was just having a look at their run and it's not too bad. And their last game is against Chelsea. So like I said, you never know. They might be a very, very outside bet for that last top four place, um, especially given that they don't have to worry about the Europa League until August now as well. Um, on the bad side, um, and I mentioned before we came on this call, um, I'm sure Arsenal fans in particular will be pretty underwhelmed by their first two games back. But um, for the rest of us, that's probably made things feel a little bit more normal in the sense that Arsenal appear to be in meltdown once again. Um, and I'm sure you two are very pleased with that as Spurs fans. Um, <laughs> Sheffield United as well uh, will probably be a bit disappointed. Uh, they obviously looked like they were in good position to sort of secure a Europa League place, but they might be looking over their shoulder a little bit now, having only taken a point from two fixtures where they probably thought they might have been able to win. Um, but for me, the most disappointing, I think, were Norwich. Um, I know the last game before the suspension was was a loss to Sheffield United, but there were signs in the and the win against Spurs in the Cup and against Leicester in the league before that, that they might be about to put up a fight. Um, plus, you've also got the fact that those three months off might have given, you know, given them time to regroup and just sort of think of it as a fresh start and just have a real go at those last games. And Southampton is also a game that, as that, as Norwich, you were probably looking at um, and thinking that it is a chance to get three points. Um, so for them to lose 3-0 in the way that they did, I thought it was pretty poor and and 
their challenge to sort of stay up now looks even more daunting than it was beforehand. No, I, I totally agree. I think, uh, I mean, the way I'm sort of seeing the, the rest of the games playing out, it looks like the, the three who are in the bottom, in the relegation positions at the moment, are probably the most likely to, to end up going down. Um, I, I totally agree with you about Wolves. I was very impressed with them. Uh, and, and it's not just because you're on tonight, Sam, but I thought Palace were very impressive as well yesterday, particularly. Although it does... <laughs> You know, it does, uh, it, it shows you, I mean, Bournemouth really were all over the place in, in, for most of that game, and they look really vulnerable now. But uh, two fantastic goals for Palace yesterday. I thought, they, you know, they're, they they seem to have clicked clicked into gear very well, and, uh, you know, the free kick was wonderful. And, and uh, Ayer's goal, that was just, that was superb. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, Palace and Wolves were the two teams that... Uh, that impressed me. I, yeah, you mentioned Arsenal. That that can't be that can't be happy for for them. And also Sheffield United must be disappointed with that um, with that uh, performance. Uh, also, I mean Leicester. That uh, Ben Chilwell goal. The individual performances by by. I mean that was a fantastic uh, strike by him. And that, apparently in that Watford Leicester game, uh, that was the first game in Premier League history. Where uh, oh sorry the first one one draw in Premier League history where both the goals came in the 90th minute or after mm. uh, just talking you know earlier about uh, that contrast between the first half sluggish first half and then you know stepping up the pace in the second half so and and also another bit of trivia about that game was that that Brendan Rodgers uh, is now only the fourth Irish manager. Uh, to have 200 to manage 200 Premier League games, so uh, Martin O'Neill, David O'Leary, and Joe Kinnear are the others. So that was strange. Um, against uh, against Spurs uh, for United, I thought Pogba and Fernandez when they came, you know, were we came together were uh, were terrific. Uh, passing the way they controlled that game, as in terms of individual performances, I think those were those were very uh, very great. But yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's. Uh, I think you know Sam mentioned Traore and Raúl Jiménez in in uh, in the Wolves team, and I think they're as I say, you know, <laughs> you mentioned their season started what seems like a hundred years ago now, but um, they were probably grateful for that for that lengthy layoff, and uh, it looks like they've you know clicked back to to the sort of form that they were in. Yeah. Also, you've helped out some people there with uh, some pub quizzes in the future. Uh, pretty confident. Um, <laughs> you bring up uh, Wolves there. I, I agree with both of you on how impressive they are. And I actually am really uh, bugged uh, by how well they played versus our draw with Manchester United. Because I don't know if there's a team in the Premier League that benefited more this week than Wolves. Who had Tottenham and Manchester United either side of them draw. Then they had Sheffield United draw and lose. And Arsenal lose twice. I mean, in that chase for... A Europa League spot or even a Champions League one because I think they're level on points with Manchester United. They're in really good shape. And then you look at their remaining fixtures, not to make it incredibly boring, but Bournemouth, Villa, Arsenal, Sheffield United, Everton, Burnley, Palace, Chelsea. That is not a tough run in. Well, you know, it's going to be hard to assess how, how teams pick back up, but on paper, they, they, they're looking pretty good, both where they are right now and with that remaining schedule. Well, a lot of the teams above them and below them are going to have to fight amongst themselves. So. Yeah, but I, I do agree with Steve, and it's not just because Sam's on, but yeah, I, I was really impressed by Palace. When they played, I think that was the best performance I had seen um, at that point. So yeah, credit to them as well, and scoring scoring the goal. Two goals in one game? I didn't even know it was allowed. 
Yeah, yeah first in the first half. And I mentioned how many went to the half with no goals, and you had already had two. You're spoiled. Uh, maybe in the in the club section we'll talk about why why do Crystal Palace have the best strike force, and why would anybody ever question yeah. if they need to sign someone up front. Um, we'll move from there uh, into uh, the relegations and why I was just talking about uh, Wolves at one end pushing up. Bournemouth very much falling through the league at the moment and looking like they'll be tipped for relegation unless they change something quickly. Somebody that won't be there to help out is Ryan Fraser. We spoke last week about the number of players that hadn't signed their short-term extensions, uh, including Jan Vertonghen and Willian. We mentioned Ryan Fraser, but it's since come out via the manager that he will not be playing again for Bournemouth uh, without signing the extension. And from his camp, he isn't signing the extension. So I was just curious how much you think that'll damage Bournemouth's chances of, of staying up and I know we already talked about it last week, but what do you think will be coming Ryan Fraser's way from the fan base, considering he's kind of leaving right when they need him most? Yeah, I mean, based on yesterday's performance, I'll possibly miss him quite a lot. Um, I mean, having having said that, Fraser hasn't necessarily um, hit the heights this, this season that he had the previous year. I think he's only got one goal and four assists this year compared to seven and 14 assists in the 2018-19 campaign so he hasn't he hasn't quite hit that form but if you're Eddie Howe he is someone you'd rather have the option to pick um especially in a relegation battle like Bournemouth are in um I mean you do worry about about them uh, especially after yesterday they've got some really good creative attacking players in the squad you know Callum and Harry Wilson Josh King um Brooks Solanke Stanislas but to only have one shot on target at home to Palace uh, is pretty worrying. Uh, again, a game that if you are in the bottom three, you're probably looking at as an opportunity to get three points. Um, and I think, you know, you, you need a bit of, you know, you kind of, you need those battling qualities, a bit of toughness to get out of those situations. Um, Bournemouth don't really seem to have that, um, or in yesterday's evidence, they don't seem to have it. And Eddie Howe doesn't necessarily strike me as someone who is going to inspire those battling qualities in a group of players. Um, so they're going to have to try and find that motivation from somewhere. Um, I think what's interesting as well is that in previous years, you know, Bournemouth have teetered around that relegation zone before, but I'm not sure they've ever slipped into, slipped into it or been there at this point in the season. So it's quite unfamiliar territory for them to be in the bottom three with this many games to go. So it will require sort of something different to, to how they usually finish a campaign because I've, I've always had doubts about Bournemouth and all of a sudden they're in mid-table because they've won four games in a row and that just sort of seems to see them safe every year. So kind of not having that cushion this year, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, And I think Ryan Fraser is probably one of those players, you'd say, has that tenacity, has the ability to get up and down and kind of fight a bit. So to not have him available, I'd definitely say is a blow Um, in terms of the reaction that he's going to get from the fan base. I mean, He's probably not too worried about that, given that none of them can go to the games anyway. Um, and, <laughs> and he's next, not playing. The next time, yeah, the next time that uh, he sort of see, well, he might not even have to play against them again if they get relegated and he gets a move to a to a Premier League side. So um, I'm sure that won't be bothering him too much. But yeah, is it? It's it's interesting, isn't it? To when you do see these players. Um, saying they're not going to play. I know there's Lyle Taylor for Charlton in the Championship as well. They're sort of in a relegation battle too, and he's he's their best player. Um, so to see that as a fan base must be pretty demoralising and hurt a lot. But I guess you know players do have short careers, and they I think I guess 
in a situation like this, they do have to look out for their number one priority, which is themselves. Um, and if playing behind closed doors, sort of outside of their actual contract, um, is going to risk an injury that might prevent them from getting a move um, in the coming months, uh, you know, that sort of that's something that's some, that's a risk that you have to weigh up because ultimately it's sort of it's your livelihood, isn't it? So I do have sympathy for those players, um, and I'm also very happy that none of those players play for Palace. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I totally agree with all of that, and I was going to mention the thing about the injuries as well because obviously the players in any of those clubs in the sort of bottom four or five are all sort of thinking about, as you say, thinking about their own situation, thinking about what's going to happen at the end of the season. And, uh, and it's, it's very hard, I think, um, for a manager to instill that sense of a common purpose or a collective endeavour uh, in players who are now sort of looking beyond the end of the season and what might happen. And, uh, and it, obviously it's a unique situation. This, this season is, is, uh, is unique in, in so many ways, but obviously um, the, the interruption to the season and the way in which now we have to reanimate ourselves or reanimate uh, uh, a losing what could turn out to be a losing cause uh, just puts more pressure on the sh- on the shoulders of the manager, I think. And as, as you pointed out, Sam, I'm not sure Eddie Howe is. I mean, as you say, he's he's sort of flirted with uh, disaster for for many seasons now. And now, you know, maybe it's the, the fact that he's no longer the youngest manager in the Premier League. Maybe it's that. Maybe is the the sense <laughs> that he's had plenty of plenty of opportunities to deliver, and now uh, he's coming up short. But the, the the thing is, you end up in the bottom in the bottom three because you deserve. That's where you deserve to be. And uh, certainly of those of those five clubs at the bottom, I mean, I it wouldn't surprise me at all if the if the three that are in the relegation zone at the moment are the ones that end up going down. Yeah, and for those that aren't aware, Bournemouth, Villa, and Norwich are the three uh, currently in the relegation spots. Uh, yo-yoing all the way back up to the top of the table. Let's talk about Liverpool for a little bit. Uh, the match that ended just as we were about to hit record uh, was the Merseyside Derby Everton and Liverpool draw nil-nil. I think Everton actually had a pretty good go of it, especially later in the match. But that draw means Liverpool have won just one of their last five matches in all competitions and have been knocked out of two of those competitions, the FA Cup and the Champions League, in the process. Obviously, they're having an incredible season, slow march to the title, etc., etc. Do you think that these, air quotes, struggles in form, which of course is bracketed by two months of no football, is just kind of a a natural regression to the mean, considering how high they were flying all season? Or do you think it might be a little bit more or something else? Yeah, I mean, we've we've come to expect so much from Liverpool because of the sort of standards that they've set in the past, not only this season, but the season before that, keeping up with City when that was just an outrageous title race. Um, so I think like any sort of imperfection just seems a little bit weird. Um, but having said that, I think this particular fixture today, the Merseyside Derby at Goodison Park, I've learned to kind of lower my expectations for that. Um, I think that's the third time in a row now that it's been nil-nil. So it wasn't a massive surprise to see to see another cagey game. Um, I mean, Everton probably had the better chances to win it, actually, when you look at uh, Tom Davis's chance in the second half after Calvert-Lewin's flick and then Calvert-Lewin's subsequent header at the back post. Um, but I'm sure it won't worry Liverpool too much. Um, they were missing Salah, obviously, who was on the bench, but I guess Klopp didn't want to risk him or didn't deem him fit enough to bring him on. Um, Robertson as well, who's obviously so crucial to how they play with 
him and Alexander Arnold up those two sides. So um, all it really does, it just it just delays the inevitable for a little bit longer. Um, we've known for a while that it's a question of when rather than if now, and I'm sure Liverpool will be just as happy if it takes them five draws to win it as they would be if it was two wins. Although obviously the latter of those two scenarios would would be a lot less stressful. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely right. I listened on the radio rather than watching it, and uh, it sounded just, you know, a very frustrating, scrappy game. The, the sort of uh, frustrating Merseyside derby that we've we've come to expect recently, and um, I, I think that's Everton now have gone ten years without uh, without winning that fixture. Um, yeah, it's it, as I say again, it's a unique situation where you interrupt a flow of form and you have to then uh, get back to where you were. And that obviously that's not going to happen immediately or not going to happen overnight. Um, And I think that's a very good point actually, Sam, about, you know, they'd be happy with five draws uh, if that's what it takes. But, um, you know, it just, it it, it sort of, and I noticed there was a piece in one of the papers, I can't remember which paper, uh, by ghostwritten by Van Dyke. And he was already talking about, what they need to do for next season and how they're going to, you know, maintain this dominance and how they build on this and create a dynasty. Um, and so, in a way, just as the just as the players of the teams in relegation uh, positions are sort of thinking ahead to next season and, and how it affects them, uh, then the, you know the Liverpool players can be forgiven for thinking that they already have it won, which they which they to all intents and purposes they do. Um, uh, and then sort of think, well, what do, we, what do we do next season? How do we build on this? And how do we uh, make sure that we fight off the likes of Chelsea, who are obviously going to be uh, a stronger proposition next season as well? So, I mean, you know, the, the, the practicalities of them actually winning the league are, are fraught with difficulty, not just for not just for the team, but, you know, for the for the safety organizers and the police and that sort of thing. I mean, what do you. How do you do? You, do you close off Stanley Park completely when they're um, when they're playing the Palace game, just in case you know that's the that's the game? Or you know, what do you do? And then how do you organize the the victory parades? How do you do that with social distancing, that sort of thing? It's uh, uh, you know, there other things like um, uh, suggestions about printing up a special program uh, for the for the Palace game and then for the City game, just in case that's the one. Uh, at which they at which they they take the title and then you know you give the proceeds to charity or something like that. But I mean, there's all those things that are that are going on behind the scenes. But the players have to concentrate on uh, on focusing on on just getting back to uh, as as close to the the type of form that they had before the before the break. Mm. Great points. All we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with club specific questions for each of our guests. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, and we are back. Sam, we'll start with you. I promise it's not about strikers at all. Uh, I want to talk to you about where you currently are in the table. So the win, which again was a very good one, puts you past that mythical 40-point mark. Um, which pretty much means you're safe mathematically, <laughs> historically anyway. But it also puts you in between Tottenham and Arsenal, both of whom, despite not winning this weekend, probably imagine that with a solid push, they could move up into the European spots before the end of the season. As a Palace fan, are you more interested in looking up the table and maybe contending for those European spots or just looking down below and making sure you, you tidy yourselves in, in before the end of the season? <laughs> yeah, it was... It was um... It's actually very kind of you and Steve to say before that, um, that Palace impressed you because I, I didn't want to talk about Palace myself despite the fact that I had actually been very impressed by our performance. <laughs> um, and I also hadn't actually realised that, that we are past that 40-point mark and wedged in between yourselves and Arsenal, which is also quite gratifying because I went to school with so many Arsenal fans who used to mock me for being a Crystal Palace fan, <laughs> despite the fact that we all lived about 10 minutes away from the ground. So um, <laughs> I was sending it, firing out quite a few um, lager-fueled texts to them last night. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, what was so great about it was yesterday was probably the fact that it was sort of so unexpected in a way. Um, as Palace fans, we kind of have this inherent built-in need to prepare ourselves for the worst. So you say when everyone was sort of talking about a challenge for the Europa League there were those of us still looking over our shoulders um that's just how we're programmed to think um and you also always have your doubts after a break um sort of as Steve mentioned already you know whether it's whether it's going to click straight back into place um I guess it's just going to go one of two ways right you're either going to get straight back into the swing of things and pick up where you left off or like in Bournemouth's case you're going to be all over the place um so it was really nice to see us just kind of do what we were doing before before the break and get a fourth win on the bounce playing some pretty nice football in the process um and also as steve has alluded to we're in a really unique situation there right um nothing about it is normal palace are being tipped to push for europa league place and i'm not sure how i feel about it but in this unique crazy situation it just feels like a really good opportunity for us to have a go um there is absolutely nothing to lose and um you know, we might not get many, many better opportunities. Um, and it's funny as well, right, because I suppose Palace are one of those teams that you'd maybe um, expect to be affected a little bit more by games being behind closed doors. Um, uh, it might just be some, you know, a media thing, but there is always talk about how Palace are driven on a little bit more by their fans. Um, <laughs> on yesterday's evidence, maybe that isn't the case. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it, it, it does feel like there are plenty of reasons to be positive at the moment. Um, I could be sat here in a week or two saying the complete opposite. We may well quite easily go and lose to Liverpool and we've got quite a tough run in as well. So uh, um, some of this optimism may be misplaced. Um, but hey, there's a chance, right? And but having said that, it would be so, so Palace if we did get into Europe, but then none of us were able to go because of travel restrictions oh. or fans or not being allowed to attend games. Yeah, that would obviously be very, very unfortunate. And one of the reasons I brought this up is your fate is really in your hands. You still play Leicester, although they're probably a touch too far, but you play Chelsea, United, Wolves, and Tottenham on the last five or six weeks of the season. <laughs> Granted, there are only eight left. Um, but you're playing the teams that are ahead of you uh, for the most part. So 
yeah, an, an interesting opportunity, as you say. There's no reason to worry. You're probably safe. But yeah, you could even if you don't make it, you could make some real noise in, in the hunt for those kind of fourth through eighth places. So uh, best of luck to you, except against us. So if you want to crush it all the way through <laughs> match week 37 and then take a week off, I certainly wouldn't blame you at all. Uh, the other narrative that's been uh, come out of that match is that you only had four clean sheets all season, and then in the last four weeks you picked up another four, and by weeks, in inverted commas, because again, two months separating <laughs> them. Earlier in the season we talked about maybe the back line wasn't the issue, but that the midfield wasn't protecting them enough. Is that something that you view as having been solved? Again, either side of a two-month break. <laughs> or do you think, kind of similar, like we were talking about Liverpool, this is just a positive regression where your defense and goalkeeper are better than just four clean sheets out of 28-some matches? I think that's definitely it, to be honest. Um, I think it's also quite easy to forget that earlier on in the season we were sort of changing that defense around quite a lot. We've got some really, really good centre-backs in the squad, but some of them just have real issues trying to stay fit. So, um, looking at my notes, was a, oh, all so, of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, there was kind <laughs> of a two month period, um, halfway through the season, I guess, where, um, where the sort of the back four changed every week. Um, Joel Ward and Pat Van Arnholt were also out, and it was, it was kind of quite well documented that we had no backup in, in the fullback areas, so that obviously affected things. Um, but I think. Yeah, just looking at yesterday again, it's just we do have a very sort of solid experience backline. Um, so those sort of, that sort of stat about four clean sheets is, I would say, a little bit um, not inaccurate, but not 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 necessarily a fair reflection of how well the def- how good the defense has been this year. Um, and again, Gary Cahill yesterday was great. Um, he just proved to be such a good signing for us. I find it, I still am just absolutely. The mind boggles to be honest that Chelsea had two centre backs available last summer. Arsenal spent eight million on David Luiz, um, and we picked up Gary Cahill on a free. He's just been one of our best players this season. Um, I mean, I know obviously it requires different things to play at centre back for Arsenal than it does for Palace. Maybe you're obviously going to be defending more in a Palace team, and perhaps Arsenal centre backs have to be a little bit more mobile and play out the back a little bit more. But I just, I still think Cahill would have been such a better signing for them than Louise and uh, I'm forever grateful that they didn't go down that road. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I think um, the defence definitely, it's no, it's no surprise to see that we have started to keep those clean sheets now that players are fit and um, behind that back four, we've got a very, very good goalkeeper in Vicente Guaita, who I think maybe fans of a lot of other clubs possibly don't notice as much, but having had Wayne Hennessy in goal for the past three or four years, he has made a very, very big difference. And some of his saves this year have truly won us quite a lot of points. Yeah, and as you say, the clean sheet isn't exactly the only metric you can use to measure defense. For example, uh, you've been very bottom of the goal scoring charts for much of the season, and you've already hit 42 points. So uh, the evidence of how good your defense perhaps more visible in that regard. Uh, Coming to you now, Steve, to talk a little bit about Tottenham, you know, for a change. Um, (laughs) I wanted to talk to you about Jose Mourinho's substitution. So as soon as it came out that there were going to be five substitutions available, everybody had this uh, fairy plum idea in their head of Mourinho making five substitutions in like the 30th minute if we conceded. He ends up only using two, leaving the likes of Ndombele, Sessegnon, 
and Toby Alderweireld all on the bench. Were you surprised that he only used two, especially in a match where the legs look so tired? His excuse at the time being that Deli Ali and Lucas Moura were neither available. Yeah, no, I, I think the key there is Delhi and uh, and Lucas not, not being available for selection. I mean, the, I, we were talking about the substitutions earlier, and I think that the fact that you have five subs available, but you can only make them in three tranches, uh, so it doesn't um, uh, it doesn't interfere with the flow of the game that much. So you don't have the opportunity to make five substitutions. You have the chance to make five substitutions in three in three stages. So I think I like that aspect of the game. Um, yeah, I, who knows what the hell's going on in, in Jose's head uh, from week to week? Really, uh, it, the the um, performance that um, that was disappointing for me was the second half of the Manchester United game. And obviously you would expect him to be able to do something more than just hold on to a one goal lead when it was clear that the pressure was increasing on us and we were uh, constantly on the back foot. I mean, literally constantly on the back foot in in much of that second half. Obviously, Harry isn't 100% fit yet. And he's playing so deep that that um, the only real sort of outlets that we're we're having at the moment are are Son and Lamella. Um, but yeah, you, you, the thing with Jose's substitutions is it it surprises you because um, everybody praises him when it comes off, of course. But then the thing is, there are so many, and and in a way, you know, it's probably not fair to criticize him because we had the same situation with Potch. I mean, think of the number mm. of times we. We would think, why are know, we making our first sub in the 80th minute when we're losing? Or, or why did he leave? You know, so and so sitting on the bench the whole time, and and you just you don't know um, when when it works for a manager, it really works, and they can they can sort of ride that uh, confidence into the next game. But uh, I don't think you can actually sort of say um, how consistent or inconsistent a manager is on his substitutions uh, just based on based on one or two games i think also as you know as we were talking about before the the increased frequency of the games now and the fact that we're squeezing them into such a short period of time and the 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 absolute desire to maintain uh 100% fitness or as close to 100% fitness for as many of our key players as we possibly can means that we have to be smarter about how we use our substitutes, uh, mm. and we're we're just we're going to see that over the next over the next few weeks. I mean, hopefully we can avoid any any major injuries, but um, you, you know, while we don't have the the sort of three or four key players that we would want to to be able to choose from. Um, it, it really sort of throws everything back into the manager's hands and uh, it puts a lot of pressure on him. Mm. Yeah, in terms of trying to prevent injuries, maybe you don't put Harry Kane out there for his first match in six months to play 96 minutes when he looks dead at around the hour mark, but, you know, I'm not in charge. Um, but speaking of Harry Kane, he was catching some flack on social media, including from uh, Jake, who comes on all of our shows, and he was just asking me, if I was disappointed in, in how long it's been since Kane has looked good. What, what are your expectations for Kane for the rest of the season? Do you think he'll get back to form in this short period? Do you think it'll take some tactical shifting from Mourinho over, I was about to say the summer again, I keep doing that, yeah. over the like three weeks in between this season and next season? Just, I mean, do you think he'll get back to his best of the season and what do you think it would take? I obviously certainly hope so, but uh, as soon as possible. But also, I mean, in terms of the fitness aspect of this, 
Obviously, you know, he had the injury earlier in the season. But, you know, bear in mind, this would have been, we would have been in the middle of the Euros right now. So his training regime would have stretched through this um, through this period uh, to, in a, in a normal season, he would have been uh, starting, he would have been playing international football right now. So in a strange way, the expectation that he can come back to some sort of uh, peak fitness and peak form uh, in, a, in a, an, a short period like that is a little bit like an international tournament, like the Euros or the World Cup. I mean, how, how quickly do you rush a player back uh, in, in a short uh, space of games? Uh, I, I honestly don't know. The, the, the United game was not, um, not a reassuring indication that, uh, that he's anything above, I don't know, 65% fit at the moment. It's hard to, it's hard to get a sense of that. Uh, but obviously what he contributes affects everybody else around him. So, um, you know, hopefully, you know, the, hopefully he'll get, he'll get a run out on, on uh, Wednesday night, uh, uh, Wednesday night against West Ham. And so uh, we'll get a, I'll probably get a, a better, a better sense of that by then. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's central to, to what we're trying to achieve. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, everything else sort of flows through that. Yeah, well, as you say, definitely hoping for it. Not expecting it, though. Just the amount no. of chances that he's given have plummeted. His Where his position on the pitch has, <laughs> I suppose, plummeted, depending on how you're viewing it, uh, with him sitting way further back these days. As you mentioned, Lamella and Son really seem to be the outlets, and they weren't connecting well. Uh, I know Lamella and Eriksson used to have uh, communication issues on the pitch, and that certainly seemed to be the case there. And then Kane was third in how far advanced he was uh, for average position throughout the match, so... If he's not closer to the goal and people aren't creating chances for him, hard to imagine him getting back to his best without something changing. Um, we will go from there into player watch, although I suppose we kind of just did one a little bit, and we'll start with you, Sam. Uh, obviously a good performance on the whole, but which player stood out the most for you in Palace's win? Yeah, there were quite a few of them, um, I thought, which, going back to what I was saying before, was a pretty pleasant surprise. Um, I thought... Gary Cahill at the back was good. I know I mentioned him already. Um, I also I really enjoyed Patrick Van Arnold's performance. Um, he just kind of seems to be throwing himself in front of everything, and his his assist for the second goal was great. Um, Milivojevic as well. Him coming back into the midfield was impressive, um, considering that he'd sort of lost his place to James McCarthy just before the break. Um, and then Jordan Ayew just picking up where he left off with his third goal in three games sort of felt pretty important. Um, but for all that, I'm going to say James MacArthur, who was actually making his 200th appearance for Palace yesterday. Um, it was sort of like a, I guess it's, it was an, it was a performance that pretty much sort of like embodied everything that we that Palace fans love about him. Um, like he's not he's not the prettiest player on the eye, but he is actually a very intelligent footballer, and and his his feet are pretty pretty good for, for someone that you wouldn't necessarily associate um, with being the most technically gifted. Um, but yesterday it was just kind of it was a general nuisance um he was breaking up play leading press and just being efficient um he's so good at recycling the ball and getting it to our more dangerous players which is pretty thankless undervalued task that doesn't really get the recognition that it should but it is so important um and it's just all the more impressive for me because i think two years ago or two three years ago now um back when sam allardyce was the manager it sort of looked like he was on his last legs and being phased out a little bit um 
he was had a couple of injuries that season. We had a midfield of Johan Kabay, Milivojevic and Jason Punchin at the time. And it did just feel a little bit like his Palace career might be coming to an end. So sort of two years on or whatever it is, it, I thought it was pretty fitting that, that he put in such a good performance on his, on his 200th appearance. Yeah, and Steve kind of talked about the match a little bit earlier. Pseudo disappointing 1-1 draw considering, you know, no Delhi or Lucas against Manchester United with the referee giving away cheap penalties wherever he can. Not to editorialize, uh, but who did you think uh, impressed the most for us on the day? Well, we were we were talking about the absence of Mura and how much that sort of affects our, our rhythm of our play. But in a, in a way, Steven Bergwijn has, has stepped up and... Uh, and fills mm. in that role, I think, particularly well. I mean, I, I you know, to an extent, De Gea probably should have stopped, uh, stopped the goal, but I thought he took it particularly well, and and we were good value for it at that at that time. I mean, the the issue again is game management. How do we how do we hold on to a lead? How do we go forward and try and add to it? Uh, doesn't matter who we're playing against, whether that's United or not. Um, yeah, so uh, Bergwijn impressed me, but I, I think most uh, importantly, it was it's good to see Hugo back to doing what he does best. And obviously, mm. you know, goalkeepers will have a different uh, rhythm to their their training regime uh, and how quickly they can get back to full fitness. But uh, Hugo really really did look good, uh, especially in that second half as, as United sort of pressed us more and more. Uh, and one, I mean, but one, one other thing, uh, and we were talking about the players who were out of contract uh, earlier in the pod, and, and I noticed that Tanganga was uh, our, one of our players that actually his contract uh, expires. We can um, trigger a one-year extension for Tanganga. We- uh, we, we we need to get that we need to get that resolved. But obviously, once we're back in a situation where you know normal normal service is resumed, then our our priority once again becomes the back four. Um, but uh, but again, you know the back four in front of Hugo. I'm, I'm really really happy to see Hugo um, uh, back to what he uh, what he can do. Yeah, and I just wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, Eric Dyer, who actually had a fantastic match. Obviously, a lot of people wondering why it wasn't Toby starting instead of him. In the pre-match, Mourinho said to kind of keep up with the pace of both uh, Martial and Rashford. And he actually locked down Martial for most of the match. That one shot that Martial got off is the one that Hugo saved. It was an incredible sprawling save. Um, but obviously, he gives up the penalty. A little weak, if anybody wants to contest oh. that. Watch the video again and watch Pogba's left leg. He literally picks it up to alter his stride. That's fine. We won't get into it too much. But even with the penalty, I thought Dyer had a pretty good match. <laughs> yeah, I did too. You're absolutely right. And it is always the best players that go down the easiest, isn't it? Yeah. And obviously, you know, Tottenham aren't faultless. We've had players go down before. But yeah, United's <laughs> penalty record this season is incredible. <laughs> we'll go from there into match previews. Uh, Steve, a, a pretty uh, difficult run-in in terms of uh, who we're playing uh, by name, maybe not by where they are in the table. Next up, uh, West Ham United, who have obviously been struggling, but they've been a thorn in our side in the past. Just curious uh, what you're thinking heading into this one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that our next few games, I was sort of just looking between now and the next North London derby. Uh, Kev, you know, we've got uh, we've got West Ham on Wednesday with them. We've got Sheffield United, Everton. And Bournemouth before uh, before we uh, host Arsenal. Mm. So yeah, no, the, oh, I think all of those games are an opportunity for us to actually try and get back into that groove and try and uh, again, it, it, it's all going to come down to how fit Harry is and how much he can generate uh, some chances uh, in in those games. But 
as for West Ham, I I think they're too they're too good to be where they are. So I think we we should probably be a little worried about that. I would be a little more concerned if it was at their place rather than at um, uh, rather than at at, uh, at our own ground. But um, yeah, I mean, it's always it's always an exciting game. It's always one of those games where you just never know how it's going to turn out. But uh, but I, I I would take us to to win that one. Okay. Do you think Billy walks back in? Oh, absolutely. I think if he's if he's fit, he certainly plays some part. I would certainly hope so. Anyway, um, I I think the uh, the the tougher game uh, for us is going to be going to Sheffield United the next game. Um, uh, simply because they're going to want to right the ship. They're going to want to get back to the form that they showed immediately before the break. Uh, so they'll have something to prove. And that'll I think that'll be a tricky trip for us. Yeah, I agree. But if we can get through the next two matches and get wins there, we'll, we'll see where we are. But my guess is that that push for sixth will be on. But, you know, Manchester United obviously looked good against us. And as we mentioned before, Wolves looking very good and have a very kind right. run in. Uh, of that of that group, I think Wolves are probably the team that I would fancy to take that spot. Yeah, probably. Um, we will wrap up with you here, Sam. As we mentioned before, this could have been the title clincher, but it is no more. What do you expect we'll see from Crystal Palace as they head to Anfield? Yeah, I was actually meant to be going to this game. Um, I managed to get my hands on a ticket in the away ends, which, by the way, has never been more difficult Um Never seen it sell out so fast. Perhaps the last time mm. was for the first game at the new Tottenham Stadium last season uh, when I found it equally difficult to get a ticket. But um, but yeah, I mean, it kind of it would have been a win-win really. We were either going to spoil the party or it would have been quite good fun to be in Liverpool on the night that they potentially won the title. Yeah, I mean, I'm always actually quietly optimistic about going to Anfield, uh, which seems strange to say. Um, but we've got a pretty good record there and probably one of the team's best set up to cause Liverpool problems. Um, going on today, the, the, um, I think there absolutely will be opportunities for us to counter-attack, and we certainly do have the players to hurt them on the occasions that we do get to touch the ball and have the opportunity to break. Um, they definitely don't look as sort of impenetrable as they as they did at the start of the season, and given those kind of quote struggles, unquote, that we were talking about earlier, you just, you never know. Um, there might also be a few nerves there the closer they get to the title now, which might, which we might be able to capitalise on. So, so yeah, who knows? I'm not going to sit here and predict a win because, as I said before, I've been supporting Palace for far too long to make the mistake of being bold and brave with my predictions. Um, <laughs> but I think it will definitely be a competitive game. Um, so, yeah, let's see. Let's see. I'd, I'd take a draw, though. I'd take a draw. I'd be a little more optimistic. Nah. <laughs> That's fine. Um... I think um, I've I also hadn't realised until you said just how difficult our running is now. Um, kind of looking at it, it's again without wanting to be too boring, but after this, it's Liverpool, Burnley, Leicester away, Chelsea at home, Villa away, United at home, Wolves away, and then yourselves on the 26th of July. So it's kind of lots of teams with something to play for in there, um, including ourselves, but they, I suppose, if we are, mm-hmm. if we are able to play So, um, but yeah, let's see. Yeah, again, would be very pleased if you knocked off all of them except us. Uh, <laughs> although then I, you might actually wind up ahead of us, so then we'll have to temper that. But uh, we'll we'll burn that bridge when we get to it. Uh, but that'll do it for us today. Thanks to you guys so much for coming on. If you'd like to tell people where they can find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time.
Yeah, thanks again, Kev. It's been great to be on with yourself and Steve. Um, again, I'm Sam Carf. I'm a Palace fan and writer for the Eagles B because you can also find some of my stuff on Sports Pro. Um, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is Sam double underscore Carp. Thanks very much, guys. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm Steve McGookin. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's uh, at Steve McGookin. Uh, or you can follow New York Spurs at NY Spurs. Uh, if you want to follow any of my non-football writing, uh, you can get it at northernslant.com. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks again to you guys for coming on. It was a pleasure as always, and we hope you keep listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.